Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. Today we're going to look at the Salaika Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya number 8, if you're interested in following along. The Salaika Sutta has a special place in in our tradition, in my heart. Um, Mahasi Sayada wrote a book on it. And I highly recommend, if you're in, really interested in this teaching, to go and read his book. Of course, I recommend anything that he's written, that he wrote. We're not going to go into such detail, but we'll try and go through it all. The Salaika Sutta... <coughs> The word Salaika, I'm still not quite sure exactly what it means. I get the feeling that it was a word that was in use in the time of the Buddha. Like Dharma or Karma or that kind of thing. We have uh, the word Salaikana that the Jains used. Salaikana was the practice of giving up food until you die. And the idea was that that slowly burnt away as you as you starved yourself to death. It would slowly become free from defilement. the The word I think comes from, or they say it comes from leek, which means to scratch, to to make a scratch in something, make a a mark. Uh, and so I think the idea has has to do, so in some colloquial sense, with uh, scrubbing or uh, effacing, really polishing, perhaps sanding that sort of thing, scraping off the, <coughs> making a dent in the in the uh, the problem, slowly, slowly cutting away at the problem and so it came to mean this idea of uh, purification this process of purification effacement to remove the bad stuff slowly slowly scratching scraping it off but effacement is a good word I think And so Chunda, one of the Buddha's uh, great disciples, I'm pretty sure was an arahant at this point, came and asked the Buddha a question, and the commentary says he asked the question because he was observing monks, he was observing a problem, and he wanted to address this, this problem with a question. So he asks the Buddha, he says there's, there's all sorts of views in the world views about self or views about the world uh, you know, cosmology and that sort of thing now when when one begins to practice does one give up these views and so what he's asking is is it enough to decide hey I'm following the Buddhist teaching I'm following 
this view, no, this person who has these views, and I'm taking on their views, is that enough? And so the commentary says it was there were a lot of monks who were of this, perhaps not of this view, but uh, they fell into this trap of thinking that it was enough for them to be Buddhist or enough for them to be monks, and that somehow they were able to, uh, they were pure. And the Buddha understood what he was asking. It is are are these these monks who think they're pure because they're Buddhist and because they can repeat the things the Buddha has said, because they wear monks' robes and because they look and act like monks. Have they purified their minds from views? And the Buddha says something very important. He says. He basically, no. He doesn't. He doesn't use the word no. No is not something the Buddha says very often. Uh, he, he instead he instead tells him what what the truth is. The truth is, uh, if and when the object that those views are based upon, that the object that causes those views to arise. If and when one sees that object as it is, one then gives up those views. If one sees that it is not me, not mine, not myself, then of course there's the abandoning of the view. So what he's saying that is that We can we can learn and we can study. You know, take take non-self for example. So the view of self is quite pernicious. It's quite deeply embedded in in us. The idea that we have a self or a soul or that we have an identity. So much so that even the idea that it might not be true, the suggestion that it might not be true, is met with great concern and and fear yeah. and yet many people take up Buddhist practice and try to claim this that they have this view of non-self the three characteristics are often like that people learn about the three characteristics and they get the night they get this idea oh yeah impermanence I understand that because they talk about it and they think about it and so you could say to some extent they believe it but the view isn't abandoned not until they see clearly the thing that the view is based upon that it's actually not like that so it is true that upon reflection you can say hey yeah this body is changing and this body is not really able to satisfy me and it's not really under my control just by thinking about it and by reflecting on your experiences and because you see that because of that sort of vision in a conventional sense you're able to to some extent take on the view of of non-self or impermanence suffering non-self such that you don't cling as strongly to things but that's really what it's all about until you see that until you see a 
the 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 wrongness of your view you'll never give it up and of course simply intellectually understanding impermanent suffering non-self is not nearly enough to break through the the core view of things of, of experience as being permanent suffering permanent satisfying controllable that kind of thing stable satisfying controllable And so in the context of reality, what's really important and our f experience and, and goal of the, as the experience of freedom from suffering, uh, it's very important to understand the, the inadequacy of taking on a view or, or intellectually understanding something. Or even more perhaps um, subtle, the conflation between uh, concentration and wisdom, the conflation between strength of mind and purity of mind, or perhaps purity of mind states and purity of the mind, if you will. I mean, it's it's just conventional, but um, purity of mind states is, is achievable in many different ways, right? If you just distract yourself from things that upset you, then you have a pure mind for a time. You can momentarily have a good, a pure mind. If you're, if you're kind and generous to people, you can have a pure mind for, for quite some time. But when confronted by things that are un, are displeasing, you be, can still become displeased. And so the next thing the Buddha says is, and this is this is interesting for those people who are unsure about the place of of concentration, of uh, tranquility meditation, and insight meditation. The Buddha points out something that he has talked about and encouraged his monks to practice quite a lot, and that's the eight attainments, the four the four uh, form jhanas and the four formless jhanas. These are the tranquility meditations, where one goes deeper and deeper into a state of trance, if you will, or a state of concentration. A powerful mind that's based on some object, maybe love, compassion. Maybe just a candle flame or something like that. Maybe the breath. By focusing on that, one, one, one's mind becomes very fixed and focused and actually very pure in that moment. But you can't really say that the mind itself is pure as a, as a conceptual thing. It doesn't, the mind doesn't really exist. But overall, there's a lack of, of, of something very important that leads to another level of purity, and that's the purity of potential. See, an enlightened being, it's not that they aren't angry. That's important. What's important is they don't have the potential to be angry. Right? We're not all angry all the time, but an enlightened being doesn't have the potential to get angry. Not because of concentration, for sure, but because of wisdom. 
They don't have a potential to be greedy. They don't have a potential for delusion, for doubt, for worry, for fear. There's no potential because they've come to see things. Their mind truly is pure in a very different way. And so the Buddha says it's possible that one enters into any of these eight attainments of tranquility and they're just, you can research them, I'm not going to go through them, but let's just say simply one can enter into a tranquility state, a state of tranquil mind where one is very mindful and very clear, clearly aware but focused on a concept, focused on a specific object and one might think, I am abiding in effacement, right? I am, I have attained this scraping away of the defilements. I have cut them off. I have purified my mind. And the Buddha says, and this is important that people don't perhaps know, he said, these attainments are not called effacement. It is not these attainments that are called effacement in the Noble One's discipline. These are called Sukha Dita Dhamma Sukha Vihara Viha Dita Dhamma what is it? Dita Dhamma Sukha Vihara is what they're called. Dita Dhamma Sukha Vihara. The first ones are anyway. Let's see the the the, the first four. The second four are called peaceful abidings. That's it. They are ways of finding happiness and peace in the here and now, in the present time. And so they're good. They're they're beneficial, they can be used, the power of them can be used as a basis for insight. If you then switch to practicing insight meditation, but they aren't in and of themselves cleansing of the mind. And then the Buddha begins to teach what he actually calls effacement. And there are 44 ways that one goes about cleansing the mind. But let's step back and talk about the idea of cleansing the mind first. We're going to go through these not fairly briefly. I don't want to spend too much time on them but um, so we have to talk about what it means to cleanse the mind and how we go about cleansing the mind because there's this question of well if you actually work to to change yourself well you certainly run the risk of of trying to fix things of trying to be in control you run the risk of cultivating an, a view of self you know. and it, it can be quite a wrong headed no you, you can get in the wrong direction if you try to force your mind if you try to forcefully cleanse the mind and so it's important to understand well you'll see as we go through them they're actually quite good but this is why the Buddha talks and Chunda brings up views because it's really in many ways all about your view and so when we go through these it's not even so much about hey I'm gonna do all these things it's about understanding what is right and what is wrong so getting 
first of all this knowledge right when you're taught something when the buddha expounded all these teachings simply teaching them to people if i have the view that there is a self that i have a soul i have a self i am me this is me this is my body well, that's going to affect everything I do. It's going to affect my intentions. It's going to affect my actions. It's going to affect my speech. It's going to affect my whole attitude and my whole uh, behavior. It's going to affect who I am quite deeply, right? Christians, being a Christian affects who you are. Muslims, being a Muslim affects who you are. It changes you, the views and beliefs that you hold changes many things, it changes the world around you as well and so then if, if someone like the Buddha comes along and teaches something very different then it's like throwing a, you've got a bucket full of black marbles and you throw a white one in there's something new in the mix and depending on the individual uh, how much of the new stuff gets in and how, how deep of an impact it has well it depends on the individual but that's the there's a there's a it's a, we understand there's a this power of of teaching and the buddha describing these things even just starting off talking about non-self changes the way you know it threatens this view it challenges this view and in many ways just challenging the view is is a way of changing your direction right so it leads people to decide hey well I'll, this person is teaching something but then they give all these these reasons for it and it makes sense what if i were to try that and see where it leads right point being that learning and experiencing experiencing this 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 teaching right i'm sitting here and the buddha is talking to me and that experience changes me that's the very beginning and of course as it changes you and you start to look at the world in a new way that looking at the world in a new way changes you as well so when when we go through each of these 44 things just hearing about them is going to each one is going to change the way you think about that situation i mean there's a power of teaching the power of listening to the dhamma is a part of the process of change so when we ask you know how is it that you change if we talk about not being in control and so on and and if you know d how do we go about changing who we are if we're not supposed to force change and so we understand it all it, it comes naturally it's not deterministic not exactly but it's um, more in the present moment you know, changes come each moment based on our experiences and our reactions to those experiences. So let's go through these 44 and hope that, uh, well, we expect that some change comes about in all of us by going through them. So this is how he says, this is how effacement should be practiced. This is how we cleanse our mind, these 44 ways. This is what we're doing in our meditation practice, and in many in many ways, all of this just means um, changing the way we look at things and seeing the 
problems in certain practices. So the first is other people will be cruel. We won't be cruel. This is how we practice. We make a determination not to be cruel. So by hearing this and by deciding in our minds, yes, cruelty, that's not the way to purify your mind. Now it's so interesting when you think about it. It's quite a shock to think there are people who wish for other people to, to suffer. Isn't it kind of absurd, right? People who, who actively pursue harm towards others. It's kind of shocking, I think, living in Canadian society to think that that's true. In many ways we're kind of sheltered, I think. We we think, I, mean, I don't know, I'm sheltered for sure. But I think many, uh, many of us are, are rather sheltered. And it's a shock when we meet with someone who is um, out to hurt other people, out to hurt us. And we suffer greatly because we're not prepared for it and we're upset by it when... And it is upset, I mean, it's it's quite shocking to think that, I mean, it's not, of course, it's not a surprise, and we know that the world's full of this, but if you actually think about it, what an absurd state for someone to want to hurt someone else, for cruelty, for someone to be cruel. Of course, as we practice mindfulness, we start to see how, 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 uh, tainted, how defiled that state is, how unpleasant it is to be cruel to someone else. You know, people do it often with great relish and, and joy. They take joy, they take pleasure in being cruel to others. The Buddha said it's like a leper, just like a leper takes pleasure in, in cauterizing their wounds with fire. It's not exactly the most uh, blessed sort of pleasure. It's an awful sort of, it, it just feels all wrong to be cruel to someone else and you can feel the toxic energy building up inside you as you do it. So we decide not to be cruel. Others will kill, we will not kill. Abstain from killing living beings. Such a powerful thing to do when you finally make that decision. If you've killed before, if you were inclined to kill, where you make a vow to yourself never to kill a living being again others will steal, will take what is not given, we shall obtain, abstain from taking what is not given others will be uncelibate we shall be celibate Okay, so this is for monks, some Buddhists are not celibate but um, this is a practice of purity, really the closer you can be to celibacy uh, the more powerful your practice leading towards purity because or sexual activity is um, addictive it's a very powerful pleasant state in the brain and the mind and it's highly addictive of course so it leads to I mean, it leads to as you're mindful you can feel again the toxicity of it the the dis, you know the actual defilement of the the pleasure right you can this isn't something intellectual but you start to feel how it's not actually, it's kind of gross, really. You start to become uncomfortable with it. You see that there's a lot of discomfort associated with, with sexual pleasure, for example. 
not to mention of course the addiction and the the um, stress and suffering I mean really that's a part of this the stress and suffering that comes from not getting what you want others will lie we shall abstain from lying others will speak maliciously we shall abstain from malicious speech others will speak harshly we will abstain from harsh speech others will gossip we will shall abstain from gossip wrong types of speech speech is of course it's a it's a challenging one because it's we're very quick to speak to say things that perhaps we regret Speech is one thing that we should be very careful with as a result, right? Because it's so quick. It's so easy to just say something that... Sometimes you say something that you can never take back. You regret and the deed is done. It's very powerful. Words have, many, in many ways, much more meaning than physical acts. right? Because there's a meaning to your words. You express something. It can in many ways be more harmful than physical acts. Others will be covetous, others will have ill will, others will be of wrong view. Well, let's separate those. Others will be covetous and have ill will, so this is really the key. I mean, when it gets right down to it, most of our problems have to do with liking and disliking it's quite simple most of our emotional states no matter how flowery we make them come down to liking or disliking I uh, I read something today about how depression is a something but they said depression may be a uh, they're talking basically saying it's a it's a physical problem which is such an absurd thing to say. They're so intent, people are so intent on finding the cause, finding the depression in the brain and fixing that. It's not never going to happen. The brain is very much dependent on the mind. In the sense of our experience. You can cut out big chunks of the brain so that the you don't experience this feeling or that feeling, it's not actually going to solve anything. The potential, you never cut off the potential because you can't, you can't create wisdom that way. You can't cut off the potential. I mean, in this life, of course, you can give someone a lobotomy, they'll never get angry. Not in this life. But you haven't fixed the problem for them. Others will have wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. That's the eightfold ignoble path. Others will have these eight bad things. We will be of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I was 
So the wording is interesting, and there's actually, he's going to go over these 44 things in several different ways, but the wording of this section is, uh, it, it's, I think, perhaps significant in terms of not concerning ourselves with others, right? Being very, very much focused on our own purity. Now, that's not central to this message, but it is important. We're not trying to change the world. This isn't a social activity. This isn't something we do externally. I mean, really, that's the point. It's not about whether we help others or not. It's about this being an internal practice. Hey, we're talking about something that goes on inside. It's not something that goes on outside. So even when surrounded by people who are angry or greedy or gossiping or lying or cheating or killing or stealing, we will not. This is how we purify ourselves. You want to purify yourself, in many ways have to go contrary to your own uh, your own environment. The world is full of these things. And then we have wrong knowledge and wrong deliverance. So based on the Eightfold no Noble Path, there comes right knowledge and thus freedom, deliverance, freedom. Uh, but other people have wrong knowledge Their views are wrong And so they're, what they see what, what comes about from their practice Or lack of practice is all wrong And so they're not free We will not be like that We will not get caught up in wrong view And wrong inclination And thus we will not get caught up In a, the wrongness of the results Others will be overcome by sloth and torpor. We will be free from sloth and torpor. Others will be restless. We won't be restless. These are determinations. This in and of itself, it's not going to change things just because you say, hey, I'm not going to. But they incline the mind. They give you very strong guidelines for how to direct your mind, direct your practice. And when you make a determination to be objective about these states Because when you see things clearly, none of these problems will arise um, So you make a determination that when these things come up You'll make effort to see them clearly And that in and of itself will free you from them Others will be doubters, we shall go beyond doubt right? It's very easy to get caught up in doubt and think that somehow you're doing What's appropriate by doubting And it would be true if this were some sort of religious you know, Faith-based teaching But when we talk about practice What we're really talking about is overcoming doubt you know? So we say to ourselves, doubting, doubting It's not for some other nefarious purpose It's just to be free from the, the doubt Really to see the doubt clearly And See how it's causing you your stress And when you give up that doubt You don't have to believe anything else You just gain the knowledge that doubt is stressful And that's it And then you're free from doubt Not because you learned something else But because you learned about the doubt Others will be angry We shall not be angry Others will be resentful 
contemptuous, insolent, envious, avarice, avaricious, fraudulent, deceitful, obstinate, arrogant, really good words, right? As meditators we recognize these things in ourselves. Often you remember things you've done in the past that were arrogant, deceitful, obstinate. We all have these things. It's important not to feel guilty or, or hate yourself because of them. Just make this determination. Say to yourself, this is where I'm going. Or be aware that the Buddha said this at any rate. And being aware that the Buddha said this will incline you, will challenge those states and make you recognize them. Oh yes, this is something that I have inside me here. This thing that's coming up is one of those things the Buddha said. Buddha pointed out is a cause of defilement. We can see, oh yes, he was right. This thing is not good. And you give it up. Others will be difficult to admonish. We will be easy to admonish. We shall be easy to admonish. Mm -hmm. This is an important one. Some students are very difficult to admonish, always arguing with their teachers. It's a problem. Some, it's a sickness sometimes. You can't help yourself. But you argue with your teacher. and That's not always wrong. Sometimes it's good to argue with your teacher, but some people are intent upon it and they... Very difficult to teach them. People, teachers are disinclined to help them out. Others will have bad friends. We shall have good friends. Bad friends are a huge part of the problem. You get surrounded by bad people. It's very hard to pull yourself out. Very easy to follow after their bad example. Others will be negligent. We shall be diligent. Others will be faithless. We will have faith or... Faith here is confidence. Others will have no confidence. We shall be confident. Others will be shameless. We shall have shame. We shall be shameful here. So this is, and fear of wrongdoing. Shame and fear of wrongdoing are, are just conventional words. They don't actually mean shame and fear in the way that we think of them, because that would be involving anger, or aversion, a disliking of the state. But shame and fear of wrongdoing have to do with uh, this visceral understanding that the act is wrong and the results are wrong. Seeing the, the negative, they go together, they're really part of the same experience. When you see the nature of an experience and its results, you, know, you, cult you, you gain this, what's called hiri otapa. And most of us have a sense of this because we've been through bad things. We've lived countless lifetimes where we've done nefarious deeds and, and reaped the results. And so have, having come through hell countless times, we're naturally shy and, and averse to doing... Most of us are averse to doing horrible things because we know where that leads. And that's a sort of a sense of hiri otaba based on experience. But it comes very strongly from meditation as you start to recoil, just naturally recoil from the whole idea, the very idea of doing anything evil. Others will be of little learning, we shall be of great learning. Yes, the Buddha did encourage his monks to learn, to study, to listen to the Dhamma, 
to repeat and review the Dhamma Others will be lazy, we will be energetic Others will be unmindful, we will be established in mindfulness Others will lack wisdom, we shall possess wisdom here Others will adhere to their own views Hold on to them tenaciously and relinquish them with difficulty We shall not adhere to our views or hold on to them tenaciously But shall relinquish them easily So Views are one thing It's possible to have wrong views Just because you don't know any better Or you fell into it But the Buddha said the worst There's no greater evil Than someone holding on to a wrong view Where you tell them they're wrong And they are, disagree They stick to it Even you give them reasoned arguments And they, it's the greatest evil You can't teach such a person You can't help them Someone who won't see reason, who won't question their views We should all question our views all the time As long as we, we should question whether we actually know what, we're, what we're, say we say we know It's interesting, this sutta reminded me Today I was just reading the apology of, of Plato's apology with Socrates And Socrates basically says this is all he did He went around showing people or, or pointing out that the, that people who said they knew this and knew that didn't actually know anything. The things they said they knew, they didn't actually know. That's basically what we're talking. What he's talking about here. People hold on to views. They say this is true, that is true, and when investigated, when interrogated, turns out to be just a. Just empty words There's no There's nothing to it So this is This is how we practice effacement These are the, That's 44 And then he goes over them again He says even just inclining your mind Towards All 44 of these states Is of great benefit Even if you don't actually do anything physically I mean before you actually go and do something Physically or verbally Just inclining your mind Towards these and saying yeah Cruelty is Wouldn't it be great if I could If I could be un not cruel right? Free myself from cruelty Just that inclination Of mind is very powerful So he says the mind Should be inclined in all 44 of these ways Then he says something additional that, that adds to this. He says, "What is the? How do we avoid?" Oh no, it's just the same thing, actually. Sorry. He says. Uh, he points out that each of these forty-four bad things has the opposite as its means of avoiding them. So just as one were to avoid a an uneven path. By taking the even path You say, oh this path turns out to be fraught with thorns and brambles But fortunately there's another path I mean that's really what's great Mostly we live our lives without any clue as to the right path And we acknowledge that the path I'm on isn't great But I don't see any other way 
Ah, so the Buddha for each of these 44 bad things he gave a, a way to avoid them. So, I mean, being cruelty, being cruel has non-cruelty as a way of avoiding it. It's just the opposite. And then he says, just as all 44 of these lead downward, and all wholesome states lead upward, so cruelty has non-cruelty to lead one upwards, outwards, to freedom. Down being this sort of metaphorical down, being uh, into bondage. He says, just as one who is himself sinking in the mud, one who is them, who is themselves, who are who is one who is themselves sinking in quicksand or in the mud in the swamp, could never pull someone else out. But one who is not sinking in the mud could be able to pull someone out of the mud. So I guess what he's saying here is, in a way, people who are not cruel, for example, who are not all 44 of these things, are a means of helping one become free from all 44 of these things. Extinguishing them. They're extinguished by one who doesn't have them. Meaning a teacher or a friend. But not really at the... the the point is that the state, the the, the non-states, you know, non-cruelty, and that state of being non-cruel helps purify the cruelty. That's basically, what he's saying. And that's it. He says, "I have taught." So it's a highly abbreviated version, but. You should read Mahasi Sayadaw's book if you're really interested. He says, Effacement has been taught by me. The way of inclining the mind, the way of avoidance, the way leading upward, and the way of extinguishing. These are the all different ways of looking at these 44 things. Which should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them. That I have done for you, Chunda. So he has, the Buddha has done what he can do. And then he, I mean, this is a standard passage. He says, there's the trees, there's the empty rooms. Zayata chunda, meditate chunda. Ma pamadatta, don't be, don't be negligent. Ma pacha vipatisari no ahuvata. Don't be remorseful. Later on, don't regret it later. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. Ayanko amhakang anusasani. And that's the Saleka Sutta. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming up.